The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in September 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome Estelle Parsons, who is certainly known to audiences as an actress, but as we'll find out, also as a director, as an educator, as other things as well. Theater audiences have known Estelle Parsons since 1956. Film audiences certainly remember her for her Oscar-winning portrayal of Blanche Barrow in Bonnie and Clyde, many other movies as well. For many seasons, Estelle Parsons was on The Roseanne Show on television playing Roseanne Barr and Laurie Metcalf's mother, Beverly. She was for five years the artistic director of the Actors Studio and has been recently inducted four years ago into the American Theater Hall of Fame. Starting in 1956 with a show called Happy Hunting with Ethel Merman starring, Estelle Parsons has been nominated for four Tony Awards, including for The Seven Descents of Myrtle, at Miss Reardon Drinks a Little, Miss Margarita's Way, for which she did win the Drama Desk Award, and also Mornings at Seven, currently appearing in August Osage County as Violet Weston. Estelle, you're, you're making eyes like, oh my goodness, type of eyes. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds pretty impressive, and this list is, is longer than my arm, which is pretty long. Oh... Tell us about Violet Weston in August Osage County. You went into the show in July, and I saw no, you... June. Was June, it June? June 14, I think. Uh-huh. And seeing you, you are Violet Weston. You are the character. Oh, my. Isn't that amazing? She's, I mean, I'm nothing like her, but I guess I could have been that. Had life taken a different turn? <laughs> well... Yes and no. I think she's a very abused person all her life, judging from that kind of key scene, the Raymond Qualls story about how her mother treated her when she was a teenager. Uh, and I can identify with it, but, um, you know, I was not... I, I grew up in a sort of uh, intellectual... Um, middle-class family in New England. You know, my grandfather was a farmer and put himself through Harvard and became a Greek and Latin scholar and gave the Greek oration at the Harvard commencement. And uh, my father also went to Harvard and was a lawyer in in my grandfather's law firm. And so it was a a middle-class, very... uh, My family's been here since 1632, uh, Joseph Cornett Parsons. Cornett Joseph Cornett is uh, rank in the British Army, and he was in Northampton. It's now the Historical Society there, the house he lived in there. He was a fur trader, beavers mostly, I think, <laughs> on the Merrimack River. Back then, his wife was indicted and had a trial in Boston for being a witch because... Uh-huh. Uh, the neighbor's cow had died or <laughs> something like that. So uh, on that side, I'm an, I'm an old, old uh, New Englander. And um, my mother was born in Norland, Sweden, Robesfors. So I'm uh, half uh, North Sweden, almost to the Arctic Circle, and half New England. In other words, I go north on vacations, not south. <laughs> but, how, but just to tell you about... Um, Compare me to I don't I'm not getting off the track. <laughs> Violet, um, I think I think everybody in that play is pretty 
badly emotionally abused. I think that uh, Tracy Letts is writing about uh, people who are abused in their lives and how they turn out, meaning if you're abused through your whole early life. I don't want that word to sound too bad, but it's that word and everybody is abused to some extent emotionally otherwise how could i relate to this woman and player but um i think what the play is really saying i don't know if you get it in this production it's hard for us to tell there's so much uh humor in it real comedic big laughs in it that it's hard to tell but i think basically he's talking about abused people and folks there's a large part of this country as we know which consists of these people who are I don't mean physically abused physically abused maybe but I'm talking about emotional uh, abusement or that's a better word than abuse but uh, just emotionally raked over the coals as children and I think sometimes without parents maybe even knowing it given that their lives are hard and that uh, I think that he's basically writing about that. I think the only people in the play who are who um, are, are moved a little from that is uh, the uh, is uh, Charlie the furniture. I'm in the furniture business. Maddie Fay, my sister, Rondi Reed won the Tony for that. Now Molly Regan's playing it very differently and very successfully. Um, she's my sister, seven years younger than I, but I think that um, he is uh, not a member of the family, of course, and so he has kind of escaped uh, a life like that, and he seems to be a really decent man, and I think the reviews have said that as well. But the rest of the people in the play, are, are it's dark, and they are abused, and yet it's a laugh riot. So there you go. For, for the people listening who may not have seen the show, your character is the central character, the matriarch of the family. Uh, you talk about the sister, and your husband has gone missing, and your three daughters are all coming in and out of your, 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 your dwelling, your house, and you have an addiction to pain pills and other things. Yeah, so. uh, never a normal person. I mean, right. a t- totally in the grip of a pill addiction through the whole play. So you never see her when she's, so to say, clean of her pills, which is kind of a challenge, isn't it? I mean, when we started to rehearse, I uh, I was very conscious of, of that and how to orchestrate each scene so she would be in this stage or in that stage of addiction or what was she like without the pills for a period of all that goes along with playing an addict. I've only I've only played drunks. I've played a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of drunks <laughs> in my life in the theater. But um, this is the first time with uh, pill addiction. And it's funny because I don't have an addictive personality. Maybe that's why I get these roles because <laughs> I don't fall into them. But um, she is uh, never clean. You never know who this who this woman is when she's not under the influence of pills, and that's kind of a uh, interesting. I've I've never played that part in Long Day. I'm not comparing this play to Long Day's Journey because I don't think it has any uh, relevance to that play at all. It's a style all its own. It's very much closer to a kind of uh, TV. Uh, episodic stuff or 
what I did a lot of in the early days at Julius Monks and for Jerry Herman uh, review sketches. It's it's that's the style of acting that that I'm bringing to it, having done a lot of that, and it seems to me that's the kind of play it is, and that's why it registers so immediately with audiences. Wham! They're there the minute it starts. You don't have to say, oh, come along with me. Mm. You know, like you have to do in some plays. They just uh, immediately jump into it, depending on the actor's uh, energy on that <laughs> any particular day. And I think it's partly because they're so used to episodic television, so... Seeing it on the stage is like a TV show, but not because it's, I think, an amazingly written play. Every word in it is meaningful if you're working on the play. Every word leads you somewhere and gives you something to to uh, do, something to not only do but ponder and uh, wonder about. It's just an exquisitely written piece, it can't uh, fail. I mean, when understudies go on, which with a cast of 11 or 13 or something, I don't even know how many people are in it, but um, they're bound to be standbys on from time to time. And uh, it makes no difference. It makes no difference who plays any part the play works. It, it resides on the verbal line, as we like to say. Mm. You have to listen to it, and it's all about talking. And but it, it it just is an incredible play. For you coming into the show, you mentioned that your sister is played by Molly Regan, who succeeded Rondi Reed. Um, you're the new mom. Your daughters, at least when I saw it recently, were were are all the original cast. Mm-hmm. What's it like being the stepmother coming into to the family and being? You I know, can't joining tell you ensemble? how really awful it is. I just really? can words cannot express how terrible it is. Because we had no rehearsal period. Hmm. We have no idea. Five of us went in at once, Frank Wood and Bobby Foxworth and Jim True and uh, Molly and Mm -hmm. myself. And uh, we had a rehearsal period, and I could not offer a complaint about how that the whole organization works. I mean, we couldn't have had a better rehearsal time. But it was all about learn the lines, and here's where there will be a laugh, which, of course, <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, yeah, there's going to be a laugh there, you know, <laughs> because the whole show has quite changed with our in- involvement in it. But um, we basically learned the lines and the moves. So when we were confronted with these people who by now are very, very tired of playing it, having played it a year, six months in Chicago, six months here, and for some reason are staying with it, who knows, I may some, be in that. And some of them are going <laughs> off to London yes, to Yes, they are. No. And I may be in that position myself mm. one of these days of being there too long. But, um, I mean, they're all aware that they've been there a very long time. Mm. So I'm not saying anything that we don't all know and know the difficulties of doing that. But we have, I can only speak for myself, actually, but I have no idea why some of these people who've been there so long pause when they do. When I'm thinking this scene, I'm playing it like this, and they will be playing it differently. Mm -hmm. So there's... um, it's uh and and I don't know. The other day, one of the actresses said to me, "You know, when we were rehearsing this, there was a whole lot about how her boyfriend was married, and then Tracy cut all that out." 
And I'm like, <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> you weren't there for that conversation. I wasn't there for any conversation. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, really a terribly, terribly tough job and constantly, um, uh, you know, I've been doing it 12 weeks. Now that's uh, long enough. I'm just now feeling I maybe know what I'm doing, but I still deal with the script at home every single day. Um, but um, that's, uh, you know, 12 weeks I should be well into things, but I'm not because of replacing someone. I've never replaced someone before, but I don't think you can compare this to any other experience. It's just a very different style, a style all his own, and I think a style of a young man who grew up with TV. <laughs> well, it has to be a very different experience for you. Having never replaced anybody, you've always had the opportunity to create the yeah. character, create the role. And, now I, you're and going I don't in. work quickly. I've never done job. You know, there used to be summer stock, and they had two-week rehearsal periods. I never took a job like that mm-hmm. because I don't like to work fast. Williamstown is like that with Nikos. And I never went up there because I said, I'm, I can't do Chekhov. I could, of course. I'm not going to do Chekhov in two weeks. I just don't want to work fast. I like to go slow, discover, explore, you know. And so I've never done anything quick. But, but this, I don't know, it seemed like a, seemed like a thing to do. Rondi and uh, Laurie suggested. They said, oh, you'd be wonderful in this part. I said, what? <laughs> and then I, then I thought about it and I said to Rondi, you know, I maybe would be interested in that. And, and here I am. <laughs> Rondi Reed and Laurie Metcalf, who you mm, worked yeah, with on, yeah. on Roseanne. Yeah, so that's how, you, that's how you got cast in the show. Yeah, well, you see, I'd done a couple of other plays for Steppenwolf, Steppenwolf before yeah. out in Chicago. I like those people very much. Of course, I'd worked with Laurie Metcalf on Roseanne, and I'd done a, a play uh, with Rondi at Steppenwolf, too. So I knew them a long time and friendly with them and and love uh, the theater. It's the only real actors, you know, a theater that's, that's put together and run by actors. Even Martha Levy, who's now running it, is an actress. So, so now that you're wonderful. in it. Are you finding that you're having to adapt to the others who've been in it? Are they adapting to you? Or well, is it I think kind of we're a mutual, all trying kind of to adapt thing? to each other. Mm-hmm. And it's been a very long, slow process because they have this, they come with this <laughs> a whole other language, mm-hmm. as it, it were. Right. It's interesting. Well, you mentioned you're a New Englander by birth. You grew up in Marblehead, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And Wolfboro, New Hampshire. And you were um, friends with Jack Lemon. Well, Jackie lived. Uh, about six houses down on Sewell Road in Wolfboro, New Hampshire. Which is on Lake, Lake Winnipesaukee, on Lake as Winnipesaukee. I remember. Lake yeah. yeah, we still have our family house up yeah, yeah. there, which, of course, I'm not there this summer. <laughs> the, Otherwise, I would be. And does the Mount Washington boat still sail the on the lake? The boat still goes around. Still goes around the lake. Yes, <laughs> and a harbor, Weirs, Alton Bay, Wolfboro, yeah. <laughs> Been there, done that. Well, you, you grew up, you went to Connecticut College. You studied, studied law for a year. Yeah. And then what happened? Well, uh, I was I worked in um, a community theater, a very good community theater in Lynn, Massachusetts, from the time I was six or seven, seven, I guess. Uh, my sister and myself, both my, uh, you know, people were doing that dinty, uh, you know, Durkee more marshmallow fluff. Well, Durkee and Moore were in it, and the Pinkums were in it, and all these people in the kind of suburbs or exurbs or wherever we were living. We're all in this uh, this uh, community theater. It was run by a woman who was very well known in New England and really 
wonderful at what she did. They were very, very good shows. And I started there in the children's shows. And then she took a fancy to me, not personally, but I started giving me uh, leading roles in the children's plays and picking children's plays that I could do a leading role in and stuff like that. So I feel that I was a professional from about the age of nine when I played a heavy leading role in a play called The Bird's Christmas Carol. And, uh, you know, I heard pop pocketbooks open and people getting out handkerchiefs to cry and sniffing, and I heard laughter. And I, I, I had a real sense of... Uh, who you are in front of two or three or four hundred people, which of course is what live theater is all about. And I was hooked, of course, from the beginning. My mother couldn't tear me out of the rehearsal hall at a very young age. From the minute I was there, I would just sit in the front row and watch everything. I almost didn't care whether I was acting and I was just mesmerized by the behavior of these people who were you know, working towards uh, performing something. It was a great, great experience. And I learned, so I was a professional actress by the time I, you know, I knew everything about working in the theater by the time I was 13 or 14. Then as a teenager, I quit. I didn't want to have to kiss boys on stage, and I knew <laughs> that was on the horizon. And uh, I did Junior Miss... And uh, they used to tease me because there was a scene where the boy was going to kiss me and we were interrupted. And they were always teasing me that they that they were going to let him kiss me. I can't tell you how I suffered. You're I mean, I can even use that as violent <laughs> rest. That experience. I was so afraid that they would not interrupt it and this boy would kiss me in public, which I just... You know, I'm a New Englander. I just didn't think that was done. <laughs> <laughs> well, John mentioned Connecticut College. Obviously, you know, you did con college. You did a year of law school, but you did find your way down to New York. And I want to do something I rarely do. I want to quote from um, a newspaper coverage of the first time you were written of in the newspaper. And it's going to seem like a non sequitur, but this is from the October 18th, 1953 New York Times among the assistants needed to handle the many and varied projects incorporated into today, the NBC television early morning show headed by Dave Garraway, are weather reporter, cartographer, fashion and food editors, drama and book reviewers, a feature writer, a shopper, a model, a demonstrator, a female straight man for Garraway, and a person to handle the calls from members of the audience watching the show. And if one of these assistants doesn't show up in the morning, none of them do, since all of these jobs are held down by one girl, known to the audience as Estelle, she is listed on the NBC payroll as Miss Estelle Parsons. Your first fame came from the Today Show. Yeah. I was in the NBC Bubblegum series. That's my big claim to fame. What was that? The Bubblegum series. Well, they had, uh, you know, a, uh, like, like uh, baseball uh, cards. TV stars on baseball, baseball cards. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. But I was, uh, you're doing that, this this article, which is unbelievably entertaining, says you were working 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. It was obviously your money job. How'd you break into New York theater? Well, I was working a lot more than that. You know, you'd shoot a story and you'd go up to 106th Street, it was at the time, and cut the film. Then you'd come back and write the script. And then when things were ready, you'd go at 4 o'clock and see the whole thing put together. And then you'd finally stagger over to the set. I mean, it was a round-the-clock job. Uh, what'd you ask me how I got into theater? Oh, uh, well, I I um, 
It was my nine to five job, and I felt bad about it because there were people like Barbara Walters was on the local station then, and other people who wondered how I got the job and how I got going, and they were ready to make me some kind of a TV star. You know, I was going around to the NBC RCA conventions and all that stuff, and when we went to the home show, it was this concept today, home and tonight. And uh, it was Pat Weaver's concept. He was vice president. Very thick book. That was our Bible. And he had envisioned what what uh, TV would be today, which you know what that is, news and features. Uh, in the middle of the day, home, which was like a woman's magazine, lady, some journal, good housekeeping or whatever. And tonight, which you know, too. And today and tonight kind of staggered around for quite a while before they really found their base. But he was absolutely right. He was an incredible visionary. Home uh, didn't work. Um, they were deciding whether it would be me, a neophyte that they would introduce, or whether it would be... Um, Arlene Francis, who was a very known commodity at that time. So they went back and forth. Should they hire me to do the whole thing or hire her? And, of course, I was not too interested, but I was not saying anything while all this went on. Unfortunately, it didn't matter to me, or I might have killed myself when they picked Arlene, who I adored. But anyway, I, I did do special projects for them, and then that failed, and I went back to the Today Show. I'm not quite sure why it failed. They had a whole big studio built for it, and uh, it had a lot of features. But because now you have Oprah, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, Oprah, right. and uh, there was the Dinah Shaw show, which some years later filled that niche that home filled. And we do have, and we have Martha Stewart. Mm-hmm. You know, it's basically. But as I understand from what I've read, you had to often fill in on the Today Show by I did. By, by, by doing improv, by yeah. doing improv commercials, that sort of thing. Yeah. I had been a stand-in for Ava Gardner in New England while I was hanging around up there, uh, wondering what on earth I'd do, you know, after college. And so uh, when she didn't show up one morning and put a big sign on me and the makeup guy came up and fixed me up and... We had a lot of fun. You know, we could do anything we wanted. It was pioneer days. And and as TV came more and more restrictive, of course, it became less and less interesting. We weren't even in a studio. We were in the exhibition hall on uh, 49th Street. Had our group out front. When Truman took his morning walk, he'd walk by outside. It was a really great fun, but you asked me something. So how, you know, you're working this 24-hour job, Tell us about getting your breaks oh, in New York theater. Oh, uh, well, I um, I had always been working in summer stock. I was in this community theater. Then all through college, I worked in summer stock. And I was singing a lot of Jack Lemmon stuff and a lot of other stuff in cocktail lounges and singing and playing the piano. I had a bit of a local reputation for all of that. Also entertaining in uh, veterans' homes and for the Red Cross and stuff. Um and um, when I decided, I, I just, I had twins, twin girls. I was married, uh, which needs to be said these days, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I wasn't 17 and, uh, you know. Anyway, let's not get into politics, right? Okay. So um, I had the twins and I didn't want to go to the Grace Kelly wedding. 
I, I really didn't like interviewing people. Well, you, you were being assigned by the Today Show. They yeah. wanted you to go to Grace had, Kelly's wedding. And I had yeah. done Marilyn Monroe and uh-huh. Eleanor Roosevelt and who knows, a million <laughs> other people. I just found it, being from New England, just even in real life, I never ask people questions about themselves. And I found it so intrusive. I was, we're sorry. I was not happy. <laughs> we don't mean to pry. <laughs> I was not happy in the job, you know. Well, this is different, but you know how. That stuff is. Anyway, um, so uh, Jerry Green, who turned out to be a novelist, uh, he had been in the news department, then he had been head of the news department, then he was producer of the Today Show. So we'd spent years in, together. I was there five years and all. And uh, he said, you ought to go to this and cover this. And I said, I don't want to go. I just don't want to go. I've got these twin babies, and I don't really like, I can't imagine I'm going to go and do that. I just <laughs> So I didn't go. He said, it's probably time you leave here. I said, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> and my husband said, well, you know, you always wanted to be in musicals, so why don't you go in that direction? <laughs> and then ironically, the role you got was playing a reporter I covering know. Grace Kelly's wedding on, yeah. on, on the stage, on the play. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Tell us about getting into Happy Hunting, your first Broadway show and your first Broadway musical. Starring Ethel Merman. Yeah. Well, I had been singing with bands, as I said, and been doing a lot. I was, I was interested in musicals. I wasn't really interested in plays. Music was my whole life at that time. And um, I just auditioned. And uh, I remember I had this sheath dress, a black sheath dress. And uh, the zipper broke, so I'm up there. Blue skies smiling at me, holding my dress together, wailing blue skies, which in those days, you know, it's so different from now. In those days, you went to the theater. You got an opportunity to sing in a Broadway theater for like, in my experience, in that show, for Abe Burroughs, Ethel Merman, Lindsay and Krauss, I mean, the top people working in the theater. And you went into audition like I did that. And they're all there mm-hmm. and ready to give you advice if you didn't get the part. You know, it was terribly, it was a terribly important thing. Now you go to audition for something in a studio, which, what's singing in a studio? You know, you walk out in a Broadway stage and you're like, whoa, mm-hmm. let me get at this, you know? <laughs> you walk into a studio and you think, oh my God, the air is terrible in here. And you're confronted with some casting directors who don't seem to have any... Uh, background at all in theater, either acting, directing, or anything else, and uh, there you are. So it's a different world now. It's hard for people, I think. It's even hard for me when I go and do that now. It's interesting that you say you started so dedicated to musicals, because as we look through, certainly many of the roles you're most known for are dramatic roles. Well, I think I was probably better fit for theater. Um, My husband is very musical. And uh, it's taken me all these years, I mean, I guess sometime in my 70s, it occurred to me that I was not as musical as I thought I was. Hmm. But I had played the piano from the age of four, everybody in my family, and I was then at 16, my teacher said to my mother she should go on the concert stage as a pianist. I thought, I wouldn't go near that. I don't want to play in public. 
I just loved playing classical piano, but and so music was really my life, and I loved Ethel Merman. I thought, oh, I could be another Ethel Merman, which of course is another crazy thing I discovered when I was about seventy. That was about <laughs> the silliest idea I ever had that I could be Ethel Merman. <laughs> I then did Mary Martin's show part in uh, South Pacific, and I knew I wasn't going to be Mary Martin either. But anyway. I forgot what you asked. Me. Well, just the shift to if you loved music so much, you know, the idea that that you've become this this major dramatic oh, actress into, uh, and theater. And how did yeah. you find your way to the dramatic yeah. work? Yeah. Uh, well, um, I did several musicals, and I got uh, kind of discouraged because I was in a couple of flops and Whoop Up wasn't uh, wasn't a big hit for and, you. Uh, it was a big <laughs> hit for me. I was standing by for Susan Johnson who oh. played the lead mm-hmm. and she was out a great deal and I went on in Philadelphia without one minute of <laughs> rehearsal playing a leading role, stopped the show. So obviously okay. I had the chops, you know, and I played that role a very a lot, and it was really a great experience. So the show was a flop, and Big Borrower Steel was a flop, too. Um, and I was getting very tired of doing bad material. And George Firth said to me, why don't you go down and audition for Three Penny Opera, because that's Brecht. I didn't really know much of anything about anything. So, so I went down, and then I... The rest is history. I played, uh, I mean, the rest is history for me. <laughs> I played uh, Mrs. Peachum with Lottie Lenya then on tour for hmm. quite a while, and then I came back and did the show here, and then I went with Carmen Capalbo to do Mahogany. That was after well, I... Well, you did a number of Brecht Vile shows. Yeah, and Mahog- I'm doing one now in January with David Gordon. It's a Brecht's Measure for Measure, adaptation hmm. of Measure for Measure with music by Hans Eisler, which I've not sung before, which I'm very excited about. And then next summer in Santa Fe, I'm doing uh, Mother Courage, which is music by Paul Dessau, which I'm also very excited about because I love those German composers. But you also did get to play Nellie Forbush at least once in South Pacific, not I on Broadway. Did. I but played <laughs> it at... Uh, Chautauqua, was it? Yeah, Chautauqua. Hmm. But I had not thought I'd go into theater at all. I was going... I thought I would be a politician. I I started as an English major in college, thinking, you know... And I had a Shakespeare class, and they started with the Scottish play and... Uh, they started to discuss it intellectually. And I got so upset, I left the English department. I just couldn't bear that a piece of theater was going to be discussed intellectually. I couldn't take it. Mm-hmm. What kind of a crazy teenager was I? <laughs> I just couldn't take it. I walked out of that, and I thought, I'm going to go into the government department, which was so ridiculous. But I did, and there was a wonderful teacher there, and I, I got so excited about constitutional legal theory which is the only reason I wanted to go to law school. Uh, And my philosophy teacher there said, you should be a philosopher, you should be a philosopher. But I got so excited about legal theory, and that was why I thought I'd go to law school. Harvard didn't take women. I had to go to BU. BU was turning out practicing lawyers, 299 men, two women, one one of whom was the wife of another student. And you had to sit in the on the stairs and lockovers because they wouldn't let you go in and have a drink in that bar because you were a woman. And I thought, boy, if I stick with this, I'll be so lonely. And then I was accepted the next year at Harvard, but I had to repeat the first year over again. I said, this is a man's world. Get me out of it. 
Well, many years later now, looking back, do you have any regrets? You didn't go into politics or, or you didn't stay in television. I have an enormous <laughs> theatrical talent. I know. How but, could I have a regret to doing something I was just a fucked up kid? But you were looking down on theater when you were a teenager. <laughs> I wasn't looking down on it, was I? No. Did I say I was I, I looking know. down on it? Well, you weren't taking it seriously then. Having the, I was. The, the, I was working in... When, in fact, Jackie Lemon and I worked in summer stock uh-huh. together while I was in college. Every summer uh-huh. from the time I was 16, I was working in the theater. First at Priscilla Beach with Jerry Friedman when a lot of us are still in the theater today that I met there. And then I worked in a Class A stock company where all the big wheels like Helen Hayes and John Garfield in the group theater, they all came through this. And... Uh, Bert Lahr, Jack Lemon, and I were working there one summer when Bert Lahr came through, and I ran the box office. I did everything. I was the producer's uh-huh. assistant. So I was always in the theater, but I thought being from New England, it was not something you did uh-huh. when you grew up, and I was uh-huh. I was excited that I had found an intellectual thing that interested me, like yeah. this uh, legal theory. And then Harvard Law School said, okay, you can come here, but you have to start over again, I thought. <laughs> well, you know, we want to be in that world. But I got into theater by chance. I was doing Three Penny Opera in Woodstock. I played Mrs. Peachum there. The next year I played Jenny there. And I was playing up there, and there was a play by Bill Hanley called Mrs. Daly Has a Lover. And um, they had they were in rehearsal. They had had a couple of other women in it. And uh, it didn't work out. They were looking for somebody. So uh, one of these agents I was dealing with said, will you come down and read for this? So I said, sure, I will. So I came down on my day off from Three Penny and read for it, and they hired me on the spot. And that was my first play. And I got very good reviews in that play, and the limousines started coming A down. Theater the- World <laughs> Award, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, yep. the limousines started coming down the, the Cherry Lane, and you know, then I then I was somebody viable in the uh, non-musical. And a year theater. later, and that's where I belong. I mean, when I see musical people, you know, I just I'm I'm not. You go to Moses and Aaron at the Metropolitan Opera, and I like sing it four times a year. Hmm. Or you look at anything Lauren Flanagan does, and you think, how can you get up and do that? How can you even hear? What's going on? All that new music, but I, I'm just not—I'm um, not musical enough. Well, I was—I'm musical enough to sing. I can sell a song. In fact, I'm—I'm <laughs> I'm doing uh, some of Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt's music. I did Harold and Maude for them a couple of years ago, and I'm—I do musicals. Yeah, absolutely. now when I find something interesting, but there are a lot that are just. Not that interesting. Well, we wouldn't see in Hairspray. But let's jump ahead. We're jumping around, and there's a few things we want to get to. Uh, you talked about already uh, Mrs. Daly Has a Lover in the Theater World Award and a year later an Obie Award. But let's jump ahead to Tennessee Williams and the Seven Descents of Myrtle because you have to ask about anybody who got to play a role in the premiere of a Tennessee Williams play. It was not a success, and I read an interview with you shortly after you'd done that, your first Tony nomination, that you weren't even happy with with the show. I couldn't uh, figure it out. I couldn't I couldn't figure out how to how to play Tennessee Williams. Hmm. It's a combination of lyricism and naturalism. And he, you know, began to like British actors more and more. 
because uh, they had the lyricism and and maybe they'd get the naturalism. But if you're what you might call a naturalistic actor, you might never get the lyricism, you know. But anyway, I I just I just couldn't figure out how to play it. I'd have a little shot of vodka. I'd pick up my suitcase and walk out on that stage, and I was out there through the whole play. And I just and two years later, I was walking on the sidewalk, and I thought, oh, I know how to play that play. Is that crazy? Huh. Whoa! <laughs> But I was so relieved that I discovered it. But Tennessee Williams wasn't able to help you, and Jose Quintero was directing. Um, oh, look, I yeah. I got... Um, you don't have to know what you're doing as an actor. <laughs> I mean, I got nominated for a Tony for it, and it only ran seven weeks. Hmm. Um, you know, you don't have to know what you're doing as an actor, thank God, because a lot of actors who are very good, particularly in movies, are even better than very good are very often not too smart. Hmm. Some actors who can do brilliant work really need a brilliant perceptive uh, director, you know? Well, before we go to other specific shows, you mentioned director, you mentioned, you know, learning and smarts. You have directed a number of times in your career, and I'm wondering what what about that you enjoy as opposed to creating the role? What do you enjoy about directing others? Not much. Really? No, I'm an actor. Hmm. You know, I'm an actor and that's what I should be doing. I don't like sitting down. Um, I have directed because I wanted to do Annie and Cleopatra. I wanted to play Cleopatra. I couldn't think of a director I wanted to do it with. And so uh, the woman who was producing it said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I'll direct it. And um, then I got very excited about multicultural theater because I always felt theater should reflect the community on the street. Of course, that's totally naive because uh, mostly the theater is full of white people and uh, the theater is fragmented now and uh, the other cultures... Uh, don't go to theater so much except in rare instances, you know. So it was a little naive, but anyway, uh, Joe Papp came to see my Aunt and Cleopatra, and then I was in Ireland in Dingle and in a sauna, and they said, Joe Papp has called you up. I said, okay. He said, come back and um, create a Shakespeare company for me that will play in the high schools because he wanted to do what I wanted to do, which was to get a multicultural audience in the theater. And he thought if we started with high school students, it might develop into something. So I had an idea, you know, I formulated my ideas about forming this company and how we do it and what we do, and so I came back and did that for him. But I, I was basically interested in trying to get a more vigorous audience than, than one can find homogeneous audiences are not as vigorous as multicultural audiences. Though, how do you get a multicultural audience? So I said, I'll do the school program, but on the weekends we have to play for grown-ups. You can't take actors and give them a school program because they just get it's just not possible to play for that lively a group. You know, whatever teenage intelligence is, it's just not possible to play for them as an actor and keep developing. And it was a young company, wonderful actors in it, Regina Taylor and 
Jeffrey Owens and people who've gone on to have very, very good careers, really talented people. Mm-hmm. And so on the weekends, we everything was free. We played for these kids and their parents, their grandparents, their baby, the babies of the families. We had really extraordinary multicultural audiences. That was a great, great experience and the only time in my life I've ever done something worth doing, which, you know, I have this enormous inflated social conscience, which... Uh, doesn't get an awful lot of attention <laughs> working at Broadway on a big hit. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Joseph Papp, and and though we can't talk about all these shows, there was you worked for the New York Shakespeare Festival and Mr. Papp many many times. He really was a great uh, promoter of mm. of me. He was just wonderful. What I took to him, he, he uh, you know, I I took Miss Margarita to him. I took. Uh, the Dario Faux pieces to him. One piece that I did for Brooks Jones up at PepsiCo, Susanna and Lair by Marguerite Duras. Um, I couldn't get that into New York. Joe said, nobody will come to that. And Ted Mann said, we can't run that. We won't have enough people come to it. I have a play of David Hare's like that now that everybody says, that's for a limited audience. Hmm. But you mentioned Miss Margarita's Way, certainly a signature role for you. And I yeah, read that, that at the amazing. time, people people thought you were ad-libbing a lot of that show. I know. You know that playwright, Roberto Ataidi, he's from uh, Rio, Brazil. Um that play was totally scripted, completely scripted. And uh, people thought I made it up. He never, ever won anything in this country for writing that play. And it's a classic. It's done all over the world all the time. And I discovered it from a French director who was interviewing me for, I don't know, some paper. And uh, he was going to direct it in Belgium, a journalist director. And he I said, I'm so tired of audiences, of just not having a relationship with audiences. You know, this was when we started saying, George Rose, myself, Kevin, other people, oh, the audiences are watching too much TV, they don't know they should respond, and we went through that. Or I, I just got tired of audiences that weren't responsive enough for me. And he said, you might be interested in this show. It's done direct to the audience. So I sought it out and uh, had a really uh, extraordinary time doing it. It's not for everybody, but it really was for me. It satisfied an awful lot for me. But I never never had to ad lib. That play was written so um, abstrusely or something that no matter what happened, the next line fit. It was really weird. Well, it was essentially you as Miss Margarita, the teacher, and there was a student who was an actor, but everybody else was the actual audience. That's right. So when the it audience... Was in, the metaphor was an eighth grade school. It was a play about right. political totalitarianism, but the metaphor was an eighth grade school. And the playwright said, the minute you uh, go out there as their teacher, they'll fall into being students. And they did. So, and sometimes they'd raise their hand and not even know it. I'd look down and some very well-dressed, very sort of bland-looking woman would be raising her hand, and I would think, I'm going to call on that woman. She hasn't a clue that she's got her hand up there. And sure enough, she'd go, pull her hand down and get all red in the face. And So when they would then react to what you were doing, 
and they would do something that you didn't envision them doing, how would you then react and still stay on script? Oh, they always did things I didn't envision. It was the most wonderful experience uh-huh. about human behavior. No matter how many times you would do that show, every single time would be different uh-huh. because people are so different. It was just the most wonderful experience. But whatever they did worked because the script was abstract. Oh, I'm not saying I didn't occasionally say something, but to suggest that I had any major uh-huh. part in the thing. There's one joke that was mine when we were doing open rehearsals for seven weeks down at Joe Papp's. Uh, something happened, and I came out after the intermission. Something was on the stage, and I said, Oh, that guy must be from New Jersey, and it got this enormous <laughs> laugh. <laughs> we have one of those in... Um, August Osage County, one of the sisters says, I can't believe your worldview is so dark. And the other sister says, well, you're from, you're living in Florida. And it, it's, <laughs> you know, that kind of knee-jerk laugh. Yeah, yeah. But that's the only contribution I made. It's an extraordinary piece of material. Well, that was in 1977. We kind of skipped was over. Was it? That. Yeah. According, wow. according to the 77, uh, you know, uh, at the public, we kind of skipped over 1971 and Miss Reardon drinks and a little. Miss Reardon drinks Three a sisters, little. you were the Miss Reardon who drank a little. Yeah. <laughs> More than a little. You were, your yeah. character was pretty well inebriated. Yeah. I had the workhorse role in that part, in that play. You know, Julie Harris came in in the star part late in the first act, but I was out there from the very beginning. Playing the workhorse role. I lost uh, about uh, 15 pounds doing that play. We ran for four months. That was the longest contract I would ever take for a play because I didn't want to wear myself out, didn't want to do anything too long, and very fussy about what I did or careless, either word would do. But um, it ran four months. It was closer to a hit than anything I've been in. The only reason I know it's a hit is that when we were out of town, kind of like with August Osage County, which isn't out of town, but even when we were out of town, I would get these calls from people I knew casually in my life because they wanted tickets. <laughs> so once that starts <laughs> happening, you know you're in a hit. You know? when, when the old friends start showing up, people yeah. you haven't talked to in years. <laughs> yeah, not really friends, you know, people, a- just casual acquaintances. <laughs> it's fine with me. I love to get people tickets. But that was how I knew I must be in, in, <laughs> in something that people wanted to see. And it ran four months. That was a very good long time in those days. This play has run just past its 300th performance. August Osage County. Yeah. yeah. And they think it'll go on forever, I guess. I don't know. It's amazing. As we're skipping around, you also had the opportunity in 1975 to be part of the Norman Conquests, the oh, trilogy the of Acorn plays. Yeah. yeah. What was what was it like doing playing the same character in three plays in rap? Yeah, that's great. It was really wonderful. How long did it take to put those up? Gee, I don't know. We started in uh, California at the Amundsen, the mm-hmm. big barn of a theater out there. We started out there, and then we brought it to Broadway. I don't know if it ran. I think it ran a... How long did it run? I don't know. I, I don't they know. They thought it was going to be an enormous hit, but it, it really wasn't. But it was great to play three instead of one. You know, it was really fun, and... The uh, humor was great. I mean, he's a wonderful writer, if you like to do. 
comedy. It's really great. I had in the first one, I had like fourteen pages with Paula Prentice, just one laugh after the other. If you did it right, you know, it's just fantastic. Hmm. I loved it. Huh. And we've been talking about certain playwrights. We've mentioned Brecht. We've asked you about certainly Tennessee Williams you got to work with. More recently, you've done a couple of Horton Foot plays, and I'm wondering yeah. about the affinity for Horton's work. I don't know. He asked me to do it. How did I know him? I don't know how I knew him. He called me up one day and said, would I read this play? How did I know him? I don't know. Um, oh, from the studio. Of course, I knew everybody from the actor's studio in the old days when Lee and Kazan were there and Joe Mankiewicz, everybody was there. So I knew him from that. But um, he just called up and said, would I read this play? And I said, okay. And hmm. I did it. And I... Uh, I, I I I I feel uh, it's like um, I don't know I I um, I've done some really terrific work for him, and I just seem to uh, fall into it very easily. I mean, it's not like working, you know, in a way. It's just like uh, being there, and he always has some little song or something that I can do. Well, so you, you, that's fun, too. You talk about Horton Foot bringing you a project. You talk about Rondi Reed and Laurie Metcalf suggesting that you do August Osage County. Do you find the shows come to you, people come to you? Do you go after shows? Is it a combination? How do you select the roles that you decide to do? Oh, I think it's a combination of things, you know. Uh, mostly uh, uh, mostly I've, I, it's been people I wanted to work with. Like, uh, I wanted to work for Arthur Penn, and I didn't know why. I just saw The Miracle Worker, and I thought the work was so full, and I thought I'd like to work for him. So I found out that he was, at that time, I was doing musicals, and you can make a lot of money in summers, or you could then in musicals. And um, I heard that he was doing this Berkshire Drama Festival up in Stockbridge. That was an extraordinary summer. And... um so I found some people who knew him and got to him and had a meeting with him, and he hired me to do a play for him, and that was uh, uh, probably the most profound um, thing that happened in my uh, acting development, I think, to work for him. Up till then, I had a lot of trouble with directors and rehearsal, and my sense of truth was very often... Uh, hammered on, talk about emotional abuse, but that's professional, so it's different. Um, but um, he had a profound influence on me, more than anyone else. In fact, I dreamed about him last night. But, um, I mean, professionally, had a just profound... I would go anywhere for him. The only reason I did Bonnie and Clyde was because of him, because I'm a theater person. I'm really not uh, interested in... And being in a studio from six in the morning till six at night, you know, talking to some cameras. I really like to mix it up with hundreds of people. <laughs> <laughs> Having audiences. Yeah. 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 What about the roles themselves? Is there particular roles you look for or, or do people look for you? In other words, you in talked about, about being a pill popper in August Osage County, but having played so many drunks over the years, do people say, oh, she'd be a perfect drunk, a perfect pill popper? I have no idea what people say. I mean, I was on a panel at the 92nd Street Y, and this guy was reading about me from something they send to casting directors saying, hire me for hysterical parts. And I thought, mm -hmm. 
Whoa, that's pretty pathetic because I can do so much. Uh-huh. I have such a great talent for theater. To say hire me for hysterical parts seems a little short-sighted to me. Not that I don't mind, I don't mind playing hysterical parts, and of course I do play them often, but... We only have a couple of moments left. What? But, uh, You're believe kidding it or me. Not, believe it or Come not. Come on. But I want you to- told me we'd have a lot of time. <laughs> we we, we did have had it, oh. but let me ask you. I oh. don't want to miss. I don't want to miss. I don't want to miss. <laughs> the actor studio. You were the artistic director there. You have a long relationship. Yeah. Tell, tell us about your yeah. work with the actor's studio and what the actor's studio well, means you know, for you. Well, you know, the actor's studio is the only place in the world, really. It's a building that you audition for, you become a member for life, there are no dues, there's nothing, there are two peer uh, sessions, two sessions a week with your peers as an actor to discuss the work that you want to show them and want to know what they actually see you're doing. It's the only development place for professional actors to try out roles or whatever. And it's just a unique and fantastic opportunity and a place to rehearse, even if you don't ever get to the session with your work, to work on material and find out what it is. But what I'm finding out is that a lot of people aren't interested in it. They don't Mm. consider it an art form even though it's an interpretive art form, and they don't really care to work on their stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's really about Kazan and Bobby Lewis started it for professional actors who were working commercially who might want to try Shakespeare or maybe were working on Shakespeare and wanted to try Neil Simon. Whatever you want to work on in the entire literature or make it up yourself, you have time with your peer group there, you can have your hour, an hour for each thing, a half hour for you to work, and then a half hour of critique. If you want to hear what people say about it, explain what you're doing, let them say, well, I saw it, I didn't see it. It's it's just an extraordinary place. And that's what it is, and that's why I'm so devoted to it. And I've done such extraordinary work there, I would have no idea about the breadth and depth of my talent if I had not done such amazing work there. And was your Salome the Reading an outgrowth of of the actor's studio work? No, well, I knew Al from the actor's studio, and he asked me to do something with him. And uh, so... uh, I said um, he wanted me to direct something, and I said... I won't direct it because I have so much respect for your creativity looking for Richard, you know, other than his acting ability. I said, if we do it together. But he actually turned out acting in it, and I turned out the director, but we really had a collaboration, he and I, for seven years. It was just fantastic. He's so smart. What he's smart about is the theater has gotten like TV, do your job and go home. And in the old days, you used to go out of town, you used to be with the other actors, you used to have a community, and the real work 
when you're in a play gets done when you're together, talking, chatting, whatever. So when we worked together, we always met before the show, even when we were on Broadway. We'd all sit down for a half hour after the show for a half hour. But we did use the actor's studio to develop it and show it. We showed Oedipus there for an entire year. It was fantastic. And then we could never find the, an alternate space that we liked to do that. So we went on to Salome. Well, you have taught at Yale and Columbia. You've taught acting. You yeah. are a mother yourself. Yeah. What advice would you give to young people, whether it be nine years old, 19, high school, college, who want to get into theater, acting, directing, getting into theater? What kind of advice would you give them? Well, do it. Just get out there and do it? You know, when I was in Wolfboro, I was putting up a curtain on the porch and getting all the neighborhood kids and putting on shows. Do it. There's no substitute for doing. School is necessary these days, maybe MFAs to get agents to look at you, but the actual doing, because you are a different person in front of a lot of people. You are not the same person. And what you need to do is develop that person who is in front of a lot of people, that instrument. It's not a person. It's an instrument like your violin. You have to do that in front of people to find out who you are and what you've got and what you need and what you can get. So do it, do it, do it. That's Nike, right? Just <laughs> That's it. Estelle Parsons. <laughs> well said for a person who's been doing it for so many years yes. and is currently starring as Violet. 73. But who's counting? I am. <laughs> Good That's for you. the trouble. I am. <laughs> and currently starring as Violet Weston in August Osage County. Estelle, thanks so much for being with us Thank today. you. Thanks, Estelle. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.